0: It is the end of the last ice age. Glaciers hundreds of feet thick are retreating all over northern Europe, thanks to the warming climate. And in one spot, they deposit a giant mud pie in a wide, low valley, and two rivers cut through. The landscape gradually fills with vegetation. Deer, wild pigs and cattle and wolves are returning. Followed by humans Who will hunt and forage here Over the next few thousand years Perhaps they'll stand on the hills Above where the two rivers meet And think That might be a good site to settle They won't be the last
1: I'm in the village of Crake Looking across that wide Rolling valley with its broad fields Woods and hedges miles away in the distance are the towers of the biggest Gothic cathedral north of the Alps. That was built a few centuries ago, but it's right in the middle of somewhere much older, quite possibly the second most important place in England. Right now it's called York, and it has a story worth telling. So with a few thousand years to cover, we'd better start. My name's Guy Morgan, and welcome to History City. The first thing I want to know is, why is York where it is? And I've found a man who knows. So I'm Steve Roscombs. I work in the archaeology department at the University of
2: York. And in the distant past, I used to work on in commercial archaeology um, in London and North Africa. And, and latterly, I moved to York.
1: What sort of work have you done round the York area?
2: Around here, well, I've worked up on the wolds, the Yorkshire wolds, quite a lot and also um, I'm presently writing up work at the Roman fort at Malton, and then in York itself so Heslington East in particular which is the where the university expansion was and there they encountered archaeology so we managed to do a partly commercial partly community-based project there um, to sort of rescue that that information before it was built on.
1: Wherever you go in York you've Stumble on archaeology, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: hopefully not stumble. We do know quite a lot about what's where, but uh, but yes, we encounter it. And and uh, I think the big change is that it used to be seen as a problem, a kind of a limitation to a growing city or a developing city. But nowadays we can plan for it, and we can sort out in advance how that how, you know what will happen where, what's likely to be found where. We can take account of it and either avoid destroying it or record it properly, so we've got a, I think we've got a lot better. We've moved from archaeology being a problem to being a, something to be pr- actively promoted.
1: Right, let's go way back to the end of the Ice Age, which was how long ago? 10, 12,000 years
2: ago. Glaciers sort of came down from Scotland, down the Vale of York, and then at a
1: certain point they began to melt and retreat. So what did the landscape look like? We're standing by the River Ouse, just before the River Foss goes into it. Were these rivers even here then? Um, they were there in, in some form or another, yes. Um, the, this particular
2: confluence of, the, you say, the Ouse and the Foss was really pivotal because it's the point at which a glacial moraine which was left by those retreating glaciers that crossed the Vale of York and up to that point the uh, the Vale had been if not impenetrable fairly difficult to cross but uh, people moved back along that moraine which was a kind of hard standing crossing the Vale and at a particular point they encountered the ooze and the foss, cutting through there and that was really quite important in terms of dictating how human beings moved back into this area after the ice
1: age. And where did they come from? Well,
2: <laughs> from the continent almost certainly and whether this was a simple process of just one movement or successive movements of people over extended periods is much is much debated and, and we will no doubt find out more about that as we do more research. We were still joined on to
1: the continent.
2: You could physically cross, yes, and, and e- even where later on it was quite shallow. It was a great amount of change was happening at that time. There was Doggerland, which has joined the southeast of what's now Britain to, to the continent, existed. So you could physically move across that area and then eventually um, later on as, with more, as sea levels rose, then Britain became the, the island that it is
1: today. Right, so they've come from Europe. What do they look like? I think there has been some genetic studies done, is it on Cheddar Man? Yes, yeah. Uh, who turns out to be dark-skinned and blue-eyed.
2: Um, yeah, I'm not up to date with, the, with the, those <laughs> genetics, to be honest. I should be, but it's not really, really my period. But they're, they're, yes, people make assumptions, don't they, about the nature of, of people, intrusive peoples, and the way in which they move back in, in the same way as they make assumptions about, if you see it in museum displays, about the nature of people in later periods, that they were, you know, white-skinned and blonde and so forth. And some of the work that we're doing has, has people have done, not me, but but research, archaeological research has kind of given the lie to that, that's kind of taking our modern conceptions and placing it on a past that were in a, in a probably inaccurate way. So I think we're beginning to, to work, move away from that idea or towards a more, more accurate understanding of what they were like. More work to be done. Absolutely, as ever, <laughs> the joy of archeology. span We know something of, of their sort of social organization in that these were very mobile people. Whether they actually had settlements and buildings and so forth, again, is, is much discussed. There's growing indications that they may have actually lived at least for parts of the year uh, in structures. But basically, they were mobile communities hunting and gathering particularly gathering in the landscape the plants that were available to them and they often lived in quite what we might think of as marginal areas where a range of resources were available to them so near to rivers near to lakes that sort of thing where different types of resources over the season could be accessible to them and in that way gradually evolving and, and gradually settling over many many thousands of years actually
1: as i've said we're by the ooze, we 're in the museum gardens, just by the Hospitium, which is medieval, but the Yorkshire Museum is just further up away from the ooze and they 've got displays about the kind of famous site, Star Car, which is a post glacial lake it 's about forty miles away from here yeah. about how people lived in those marginal zones that you 've been talking about, so that they 're fishing they're hunting they're probably getting hold of birds and eating all sorts of berries and nuts and sounds extremely healthy to be honest (laughs) (laughs) but they must have been doing the same kind of thing down here where the two rivers meet they might well have done the problem is we don't know i mean in star car that you mentioned
2: it's a fairly accessible landscape today and you know it's under agriculture in the modern world so so we can go and investigate that it's much more difficult in a place like york not least because it's got all of this modern and medieval city plonked on top of the the prehistory so we do find things turn up in york still the odd neolithic axe or the perhaps the odd mesolithic flint so it's not that there's nobody here but understanding that in the context of York is a much more difficult thing so the honest answer is we don't really we understand these processes across the landscape at large but specifically whether there were particular areas of interest in York or whatever is until recently fairly unknown to us. Um, you've got to imagine that when we discover prehistory around York it's often serendipity it's often the odd development of a ring road or a roundabout or a major housing development that runs into prehistory it's much more difficult to predict that process because it's under a modern town
1: right. so we've got about 12,000 years ago when the ice sheet retreated we've got a landscape where there's presumably lots of wildlife deer those really big ox-like things. What are they called? Oryx? Oryx, yes. So people are presumably hunting them, butchering them, doing all sorts of things. With the star car exhibit, they've obviously been hunting deer, and there's that wonderful archaeological word, ritual, which seems to be applied <laughs> <laughs> to... A category
2: the- for all the things we don't really understand.
1: <laughs> I'm glad you said that. So what you've got is a kind of deer masks or headdresses. Mm. That's all you can say about them, really. Well, isn't not it? all you can say.
2: But <laughs> <laughs> my colleague Nikki Milner, who excavated uh, at Star Cart, she's the real expert on the interpretation of those headdresses. But they do suggest a particular relationship with animals, growing as you'd expect, I guess. If you've got people who are moving through the landscape and engaging with those animals, then and, and the process of of, of consuming them hunting them and consuming them then their relationship is quite a close one so it's not surprising that that kind of flows into the rituals that they observe because it was part of their daily life to integrate with with that those those animals in the landscape
1: so it wouldn't be too much of a leap to say the same kind of thing would be going on down here in the vale of york it
2: would be a a leap but a reasonable assumption (laughs) let's say whether it's something we can ever test scientifically by excavation is a is an entirely moot point um,
1: for the reasons that i just you know talked about so the hunter-gatherer lifestyle for want of a better word went on for about Five thousand years yes the majority of the time between the last
2: glaciation and now people were in those sort of mobile communities but increasingly as i say they were they were visiting and moving through the landscape with a degree of regularity and eventually they came to settle in it and in that process of that for this particular area this glacial moraine that i mentioned is really quite quite pivotal and here the work that we've done at heslington east is actually probably the best best example, the best evidence for how that process worked out in detail. So we do have smatterings of of Mesolithic and Neolithic flint but by the Bronze Age they are beginning to bury in that landscape, bury along the line of the moraine and then increasingly off the slope and then by the time we get to the, the Iron Age about 500 BCE, that sort of period, so relatively two and a half thousand years ago, relatively recently in, in the terms in which we're talking, then they were beginning to actually settle in that landscape and divide it up and make claims on it and dig ditches through it and define eventually fields and droveways and things like that. All of this happening in prehistory, later in the Iron Age, before there was any Romans on the horizon. So there's already a kind of interestingly evolving engagement with the landscape that's happening. Happening, um, well, before Rome was, was
1: uh, thought of. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, shall we retreat to your office? I'm s- slightly aware of just how windy <laughs> it is around here. <laughs> sure. Right, we're out of the wind now in Steve's office. <laughs> Would excite any archaeologist if they wanted to try and dig through all these layers. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about. The Iron Age, one of the things that people may have a vague idea about, but I think it's important to clear up. There's the Stone Age, and then the Bronze Age, and the Iron Age. But the Stone Age isn't just one thing, is it?
2: No, no. There's the Paleolithic, which is pre-glacial, pre-the periods we were talking about. Then there's the Mesolithic, the Middle Stone Age, when people are moving back into this area, and they're mainly mobile communities that we talked about. And then there's the Neolithic, the new Stone Age, when they're beginning to settle more concertedly, uh, undertake agriculture, divide up that landscape and eventually that appears. So those, are those Stone Ages are pre-glacial, post-glacial and early mobility. And then the, the so-called Neolithic revolution, there's a lot debate over whether there is this change. <laughs> it won't surprise you to learn. But nonetheless, the idea that people are becoming more settled and farming and producing pottery and things like that. Yeah. These issues are much debated, but nonetheless, that's the conventional division. And as you say, after the Neolithic, then we have, it's defined by different types of material, the ability to work bronze for metals for the first time, the Bronze Age, and then latterly the Iron Age, the ability to work iron. Because it's wrong to think that the Iron Age and you know, most implements were made out of iron. The va- they had the technology to produce iron, but the vast majority of everyday items were organic, were made of you know leather and wood and things like that.
1: There's no kind of clear cut-off point where people stop using stone, start using bronze.
2: Absolutely not, no. And in the same way, as there's no clear cut-off point when they st- stop being mobile and start being sedentary. There's a process in which they increasingly engage with the landscape and eventually settle within it and eventually build recognisable structures that we can recover archaeologically. So these are kind of classificatory devices really and and all the interest is in the transitions and complexities that happen between them and within them.
1: Is there a change in the kind of people that are around when agriculture starts to appear in the landscape. Another
2: hot topic (laughs) you picked out. I mean, all of these ages used to be associated with major movement of people. You know, we explain social development by intrusive people coming in here. And that's probably true of the Mesolithic. People did move back into the area after the last ice age. But the other periods, it's a debated issue is, are these new people coming from somewhere else or are they the population which is evolving into more complex social structures. And as I say, I'm not an expert on on prehistory, but as I understand it, that the jury's out, that debate continues. How do we explain these changes? Is it internal evolution, or is it something from outside bringing new ideas and new
1: people into the area? So the Vale of York's becoming more settled. People are sticking around in one place. When we talk about agriculture, what kind of agriculture are we talking about?
2: We're talking about barley and wheat and so forth, increasingly cultivated, which fundamentally are different sorts of grasses that humans have modified to to grow and, and feed themselves. So that's that's all happening. And then there's I mean, there's an interesting story to be told about how the again, not something I'm a great expert on, but crop evolution. All the processing of crops we see, um, we, we have the evidence, more easy to recover archaeologically, of quern stones, which are really important, i.e. the, the grinding things. Um, so ha- whether those were used by individual households or, as we get later on in the Roman period, more centralised, where they're you know, larger, not individual hand querns, but are, are mechanical querns driven by people or by animals or whatever so they are increasingly consuming crops in a greater scale and and more organized and perhaps intensively cultivating them and of course they're not just living off crops they're also they're also living off animals as well
1: so it's a mixed diet i don't know whether it's a healthier diet (laughs) and the hunter-gatherer days just mentioning the quern stones i think if people have been watching archaeology programs on TV, they may be sort of familiar with these kind of slightly curved... Saddle querns, you mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. things that where people had to squat and take another stone and then grind mm-hmm. the grain to a powder. Flour. Which, which we call flour. <laughs> and I think that shows up in the skeletons, doesn't it? Because actually it's, it's a very intensive bit of work.
2: Yeah, so I mean, you do get these indications of people who were in life must have been squatting a lot... Uh, we have some good examples actually from the roman period up at heslington east where there are there's a um, a, a few adult inhumations extended skeletons buried there in the third century and one of those which is rather well preserved is a woman who has some of these injuries from repetitive strain so she was you know part working in that landscape and it had an impact on her so on on her bones so yes both for the Roman period and for earlier ones as well there is and that's another good indication isn't it of the of the relationship between being a mobile community where you're kind of you're moving around and you're you're probably dying quite young actually I'd be dead (laughs) and so would you as it happens but so the length of your life is is reduced but nonetheless you're not repeating these kind of activities whereas later on as things become more set, people become more settled and food chains become more regularised and so forth, and processing becomes more more regularised as well, then people are beginning to specialise in particular activities, and this has an impact and is recognisable in their in the skeletal remains.
1: What are they living in? They're living in, well,
2: the first buildings that we can discover are roundhouses, um, which are... Quite complex households, really. They're they're not just sort of simple huts. They are, as they develop in the course of the Iron Age, they are sort of they've they're divided in quite complicated and interesting ways. Perhaps spaces for animals as well as people. Um, there certainly seems to be, from the division of, the distribution of of artifacts, perhaps gendered spaces their orientation is quite interesting, but they're living in roundhouses. But don't go away with the thought that that makes them simple hovels. They are quite complex socially.
1: Do we have any idea what sort of culture they have, how they organise their society?
2: Well, we do, yeah. I mean, they organise them around those households and then there's levels of complexity. So there were no doubt a series of household Dynamics which would have involved gender divisions, perhaps specialization of labour. I mean, as people became more settled, then a whole new series of changes come into play. I mean, for a start, the position of women and having children, will, will become become quite different. So gender relations will have changed. Whereas in mobile communities, the limitation on the amount of children that can be you can you can go through the landscape. Whereas when you're settled, it makes sense to have larger families. And also that means if women are more involved in in childbirth uh then they're more likely to be you not know, excluded in a in a sense but but less likely to be found you know traveling with transhuman flocks across the landscape, so gradually over time, and no doubt contested in all sorts of interesting ways, which we don't have easy access to, the position of women did shift, and other things as well. so if you're an agricultural community, it makes sense to store things. And therefore it means the necessity of the continuity of your process. If you want to live in one place, you need to store for future planting and so forth. That's a fundamental shift as well. And therefore it begins to make sense to raid those places in a way which wouldn't make any sense for mobile communities. Conflict is more likely and conflict resolution is different. I mean, there's plenty of evidence from anthropological literature with people who are hunting and gathering. If there are serious social conflicts, then they divide and they go their separate ways and that's it, that's, the, that's how those things are resolved. Whereas you've got a whole new set of complex dynamics if you're settled in one place, and uh, which you were increasingly. And so you've got to have different ways of, of resolving those, those issues. And out of that you get people, perhaps, I mean this is hypothetical, but kind of drawing on anthropological literature, you get people who are in designated positions to mediate those conflicts and those become more powerful people. In other words, you see increasing social complexity emerging in the process of people settling. So it has important implications for the position of women in society and also for social relations more generally.
1: Yes, just bearing children is a fairly hazardous business, isn't it? Well, that,
2: that, that is well, yes, uh, from everything that we know. I mean, it's only in the, in the in recent decades, really, across large swathes of the world that uh, child char- bearing hasn't been a fundamentally most dangerous thing that women have to do i mean it's something that has changed today thank goodness but back then would have been quite problematic but also i mean the point is that women were being increasingly finding themselves more in the home and of the home if you like which isn't necessarily a reduction in their power they were no doubt of pivotal importance and central to dictating what happened in that vicinity but you're seeing a gender divisions emerging slowly but surely as a result of this process of increasing sedentism.
1: What kind of evidence have we got within the wider region of the way people carried things out? We're beginning to talk about tribes, I suppose, Mm. for want of a better word. Yeah. What evidence is there of those?
2: There's, I mean, as we get into later periods, you know, into the Roman period, we get documentary history as well as archaeological evidence. The problem with the documentary evidence is that it does tell us about tribes, it names tribes in this region. The Brigantes, which were a kind of confederation of groups over large swathes of the the northeast of Britain, and the Parisi who were seemed to be mainly confined to what we now think of as east yorkshire but they're
1: the people with the chariot burials aren't that's they? right, yeah,
2: clearly they had elite people and mobility and you know operating in these chariots or carts, whatever you want to call them, was important. The problem here is that that those tribes are named by the people who conquer them and so how much the Romans actually knew, they, they named the Parisi into existence as it were, how much they actually knew about them and whether this was how they saw themselves is an entirely, entirely different matter. Nonetheless, you're right, um, by the time the, when the Romans arrive in this region and further south, they are encountering what they tribal peoples who had designated leaders. So that's another level of, of complexity above the kind of household dynamics how far down society that went in the Iron Age, you know, whether, whether you knew or still or even cared about who your tribal leader was, as named by the Romans, might be a moot point. But nonetheless, some things that the Romans would recognise as being tribal distinctions existed and were named by them when they, when they arrived here.
1: So we've got quite a complex society by now. They're using iron tools plus anything that's useful, yeah. Um, pretty much. They're in settled communities and presumably have the usual sort of relations that human communities have. They, they fall out, they make up, they trade, intermarry. That's the kind of picture we've got from 2,000 years ago. Yeah. And then some strangers turn up. <laughs>
2: Bodies of armed men (laughs) with sophisticated weaponry, yes, it must have been a shock. Perhaps a
0: shock, but no real surprise. Although it could be argued that the city of York owes its existence to an Iron Age domestic drama.
1: Join us next time for that, but for this podcast I'd like to thank Steve Roscombs of York University's Archaeology Department. The spirit of York is embodied by Alison Willis, and this episode was produced and presented by me, Guy Morgan. It's a Soundstage North production. Thanks for listening to History City. To find further information about Britain's prehistory, there are some links to follow in our show notes on the programme page. And if you enjoyed the show, please write a review on the site of your podcast provider.